authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want? What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came, and came out of him with a shriek. The people were, so, were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to the impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went, in, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left, and she began to wait on them. <clears throat> that evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. This is God's word. You may be seated. We are going to uh, spend some, some time tonight uh, considering Capernaum. Capernaum was, was Jesus' home in Matthew chapter 4 and in Mark chapter 1, uh, two of the most prevalent places in the New Testament. talks about him leaving Nazareth, which was his home, traveling to the northeast uh, towards the, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee and traveling to a town uh, that was called Capernaum. Capernaum it, uh, was originally uh, pronounced as Kephar Naum. Uh, Naum is the word Nahum that we have in the Old Testament. Nobody knows who this fellow by the name of Nahum is, but obviously he was somebody of, of some respect, some renown to be able to have this town named after him. The word Kephar means village, so the village of Nahum is Capernaum. Uh, to show you on a, a map, it's, uh, it's, it's located up here kind of just straight on the northern tar, uh, top part of the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, why Jesus chose Capernaum, not really known. It wasn't really because of its, of its wealth. Uh, the cities of Tiberias and, and then another one between Cap Tiberias and Capernaum, a town called Magdala where Mary of Magdalene came from, Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene came from, was a much more affluent town. But for a lot of reasons, he probably went to uh, Capernaum because of, of the kinds of cosmopolitan uh, atmosphere that had been created from the numbers of different kinds of people living there. It's not really known. It's only conjecture at this point. But what we do know is that the Gospels talk about him living in Capernaum. As you can see, too, there's uh, the, the Via Maris, that goes all the way down from, uh, from the north along the northern part of the Sea of Galilee where Capernaum was located, down towards Megiddo, towards uh, Gezer, all the way down into, uh, into the peninsula. And so it was a really important city during the time of Jesus. There was a tax office that was there. In fact, Capernaum was a home to one of the disciples by the name of Matthew who was a chief tax collector. When you go into um, Capernaum, one of the things that's just striking to you is the amount of archaeology that has been done. 
And Capernaum is one of those great, great places where you can see how people lived in the first century. Most of Jesus' miracles were done in Chorazin to the north, just a few miles, down to Capernaum, and then over to Bethsaida. And this is really where Jesus spent much of his time. And so when you go to Capernaum, you can see how people lived in the first century. Now, um, this particular uh, emblem that you see in front of you, unfortunately, when you go to certain sites, you're not going there with optimal sunlight. But this is actually a Roman mile marker that comes from the Via Maris. It's, uh, it's about 135 AD during the time of Hadrian. And uh, when you go there, it's one of the first things that you see. There's a, there's a, lot, <coughs> there's a lot of sculpture relief uh, from, the, from the buildings. Uh, a lot of the limestone that you see in this place right now dates to about the 4th century, about 300 years after the time of Jesus. And you see just some, some extraordinary work. And what people with a hammer and a chisel could do with limestone during the, during the, the, the ancient world, and, during, and especially during the time of Jesus. What we have here, <coughs> if you can see it clearly, uh, again, you know, sometimes the picture taking light is not that great. But you have two wheels down here on the bottom of this block. And on top of it, you have the Ark of the Covenant. And it probably goes back to 1 Samuel, the idea of the Philistines sending the Ark after they were afflicted by God for having the Ark of the Covenant, sending it back to Israel. And this is a representation of how they imagined it looking when the Philistines sent it back to, uh, to Israel. You have also uh, at the top of a column, you, you have some really interesting symbolic art that, that represents Israel. Uh, right here in the middle, you have the menorah, which uh, uh, we're going to see a Star of David here in a minute. And most people today associate Israel with the Star of David. The Star of David actually was not a symbol for, for Israel until the, the 1800s, until the 19th century. What was always, from sort of the beginning of Israel to even today, the symbol for Israel is the menorah, and specifically <coughs> the menorah with, with two olive trees on either side of it. The, the olive trees being the witnesses uh, that you read about in Zechariah and Revelation. is going to be Elijah and Moses. Uh, just to the north here, we're going to uh, have the, the Mount Hermon where the transfiguration took place and you have the menorah which is the light which is representative of God to Israel with the two olive trees you know in Zechariah and Revelation what do you have on the transfiguration you have Christ who transfigures becomes the whitest of white light and you have the two witnesses Moses and Elijah up there on the mountain with him but here we have something a little bit different that's kind of interesting. Uh, you not only have the menorah, but you have the shofar, which is that gigantic horn that they would call people to the synagogue, call people to, uh, to prayer, call people to, to the temple. You also have on this side of the menorah a shovel, which was really was kind of depicting or representative of the shovel that was used to move the incense to the place where it was burned in times of worship. So really, really cool piece of, 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 uh, of sculpture right there. Uh, here you find the, uh, the Star of David that had been carved into that limestone. Uh, the six points. Now what is interesting is right next to it you have a five-point star. So even going many, 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 many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years back, the five-point star, as well as what became known as the Star of David, with the six points, was a part of, of, the, of the art in Israel. Um, 
This was also kind of an interesting piece because if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 8, you find that there's, a, there's fruit and grain that becomes associated or represented in Israel. And in Deuteronomy 8, it's wheat and barley and grapes and figs and pomegranates and olives and dates. And you find all of those here. You find grapes, you find pomegranates. Uh, th these are figs. Uh, in the next picture, oh, I think I took it out. There's also barley clusters in there. Really, really uh, beautiful pieces of, of sculpture as well. Uh, one of the things that, that, that kind of blows your mind when you go to the home of Jesus is how close people lived to each other. Uh, there, there's a lot of a lot of references in in the Bible to the Father's house, and and basically these things were called insulas, I N S U L A, and you would have sort of a main room, and the family would be raised, and the wife always lived with the husband, and the husband with the family. So you know, there's there's the terminology in the Bible of of, uh, of going away. But I will come back for you and I will take you to my father's house. Jesus talking about the second coming. All of that comes from this first century culture where, you know, the bride and the groom would become legally married. But then the bride would go back and live with her family. The groom would go and build kind of the, the room or the rooms to the house where he and his bride would live. Usually it would take anywhere from 9 to 12 months. And at the end of that time, he would go to his bride's family's home. Would, would fetch her and bring her back to live in his house. And here you have this great example of what that would look like. Now, when we think of, of living with people, and, and you know, especially in a North American Western culture, we think of big rooms and a lot of space and you know, doors and all these kinds of things. That's not the way it was. Well, it's not the way it is in most of the world today, but especially in the Mediterranean ancient world, you had these insulas where you basically had very small rooms that were connected to each other and people lived on top of people who lived on top of people and it was all very, very close, close quarters. And as you can see up here, you can see all of these rooms that are connected to one main room with a courtyard out in front of it. And so you get this idea of how folks lived during the time that Jesus was living himself in Capernaum. One other thing that I think is really good about this picture is that uh, all of the building material in the north during the first century was rock and it was basalt or volcanic stone. It's this black, uh, very porous stone that was that was easy to, to kind of cut and to get shaped. And when you see something that is built in Israel today in the northern part out of this basalt, you know that it goes back to the first century. After the first century, limestone was used, as we'll see here in a couple of minutes. One of the things that's real interesting about Capernaum too is that you have uh, you have five times as many oil presses and, and, and grain uh, uh, grinders as you will find anywhere else in Israel. And part of the thinking about this is that uh, Capernaum perhaps was a place where these things were manufactured, that there was some kind of a factory there in which these, uh, these grinders and these presses were made. This one up here to the left is a grain grinder. A pole would be stuck here it would be pulled or it would be pushed in a circle and that stone is kind of tapered where it would it would go in a circle would grind the grain over here to the right <coughs> is a press and the, the olives would be put inside of a, a bag and it would be tightened up and then that bag would be placed 
on top here. And then there would be a, <coughs> there would be a niche in the wall someplace where a gigantic uh, piece of lumber would go across it like this. You would put weights gradually getting heavier and heavier and heavier as you go. And as that weight, that, that lumber would come down on those olives, it would, um, it, would, it would come out of that bag and it would actually seep down into places like this and then down into little troughs like that. And there were, <coughs> there were normally three pressings of, of olives. The first pressing would be obviously the best and it would be the oil that would be used for anointing. The second pressing would be for light, like in a lamp, and it would also be for healing. Olive oil in the ancient world was, was it wasn't quite aspirin, it wasn't an analgesic, but it was something that was used to bind up wounds and to soften wounds and to help them heal, and there are healing properties in olive oil. And then the third pressing, which would become uh, sort of a, kind of a milky substance, uh, that would be used for cleansing. And one of the real interesting things that you find in Luke's Gospel is that when we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, the word Gethsemane in Hebrew means what? Olive press, right? And when you get to Luke chapter 22, and Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion, uh, what, <coughs> what happens to Jesus in terms of the anxiety and, 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 and the, the duress that he's going through during that period of time? He begins to sweat, and there are droplets of blood that come out with the sweat, right? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and this picture that Luke is painting is that Jesus is going through this pressing as well. How many times does Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? How many? Three. Three times. How many pressings of olive oils are there? Three. And you find symbolically in all of those, hey, thank you, Rob. You find in all of those pressings something that is said about Jesus. He was in the first pressing, the anointed one. In the second one, he is the light of the world, and he is the one that brings healing. In the third uh, pressing, he is the one that cleanses us from our sins. And so there was so much imagery that was used in the first century and by the Gospels and the teaching of Jesus and the writing of the apostles and the other writers that had so much connection to their culture, to their society and their customs and their manners that it just really makes the, the Bible, the words of the Bible, just lift out of the pages. But there was uh, all kinds of, you know, when Jordan and Wayne and I were going through Capernaum, we, we noticed how many of these, these grinders and these presses that were there. And it was a reminder that even in the first century, they probably had factories where these things were mass produced. And it became, especially as close as it was to the Via Mars, and therefore transportation, uh, getting into different places in the world, not just in Israel, it was probably a pretty lucrative place at that. Here's another picture of some of those that have just been uncovered. Uh, you know, one of the things that leads the archaeologists to think that it was probably a factory is that you find these things all clumped together. You know, a home is normally not going to have multiple grinders or multiple wine, uh, excuse me, olive presses. Uh, the fact that these are all clumped together give, you know, kind of credence to the idea that there was some kind of a factory like this. Uh, not only is Capernaum the home of Jesus, it's also the home of Peter. And one of the, uh, the, 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 the really impressive statues that you find in Israel is this one of Peter where you have a fish down at the bottom of his feet. 
which was representative of when they were in Capernaum and the, the temple tax issue comes up, the fish that he catches, which is known as a Peter fish that you can eat to this day in the restaurants, is delicious. It's just a it's just a big old tilapia is basically what it is. It is this fish though that the uh, the temple tax was found in its mouth, where Jesus and Peter had their temple tax paid in that miracle. Uh, you also find about thirty meters from the synagogue. You find uh, this. It looks. I always call it the Astrodome of Israel. And basically what it is, is a, it's a Catholic church that has been built over what is considered to be Peter's home, or at least Peter's mother-in-law's home. You remember in, in uh, Mark chapter 1, that uh, Jesus on the Sabbath, on the Shabbat, he goes to the synagogue. And as it was his custom, he would teach, and all the people are amazed by his teaching. And as they're, they're so amazed, and they're talking about the greatness of his teaching, Another great episode takes place, and that is this uh, demon-possessed man. Uh, this demoniac comes into the, into the synagogue, and Jesus, you, you know, what have you to do with us now? And, and Jesus heals this man, throws the demon out, and everybody is really uh, just you know, excited, and they're, they're so amazed at what they see there. And then Mark says, the next thing that Jesus does is go where? To Peter's house and heals Peter's mother-in-law, who had a fever, and she gets up and then begins to cook dinner for them. And this site that we're about to see is underneath this astrodome-looking uh, Catholic church that's, that has basically a, uh, an auditorium, not, not dissimilar from this, much smaller, and it's more in a circle. But right there in the middle is a big, gigantic, thick glass window where you can look down into what is considered to be Peter's house from the first century in Capernaum. And this is it. Uh, basically, what you have is a very, very tiny structure. You'll remember from those first pictures where we were showing the insulas and how people lived together and how the family added uh, rooms to the main house and it just got bigger and bigger and more kind of congested. You see again, here is a room from the first century. It is not very big at all. It is, it is, it is tiny. But the thing that's interesting about this is in the 1800s and the 1900s, the beginning of the 1900s, there was some archaeology that was being done Capernaum by Americans and the British. One of the things they uncovered was this, about 30 meters or so from the synagogue. And as they began to uncover, they found all kinds of uh, uh, house utensils, uh, uh, pans, buckets, thing, you know, things like that. And then they also uh, uncovered this room. And one of the things they found in this room, again, it's out of this basalt stone. It goes all the way back to the first century. One of the things that they found was that the inside was plastered, which meant that this was a significant room, that there was something about this room that had been preserved. And as they uncovered and they dug up more and more stuff, they found uh, graffiti that was... Um, <coughs> Uh, being addressed to Jesus, uh, Jesus have mercy, those kinds of things. They also found scratched underneath the plaster the name Peter here. That has led, in fact, this is one of the first uh, articles that Biblical Archaeological Review published about 25 years ago. And inside of this, they found, you know, Peter. Now, again, there's a lot of debate about this, but again, it seems to fit the story of being able to to go from the synagogue to Peter's house was the distance that would not violate the Sabbath. It's, it's that close. 
So in the first century, there were people that were trying to preserve this particular room as Peter's, uh, Peter's home and the place where his, his mother-in-law was healed. We go to the next picture, and what you're going to see is that not only was it in the first century, but this wall right here is a fourth century church. Because the first century church wasn't big enough, they built a wall around it in the fourth century to commemorate this place as someplace special. And then in the fifth century, there is a third wall that was built around this place. So within a hundred years of the time of Jesus, there were people saying that there's something special about this place. It carried to the fourth century, carried to the fifth century as well. And again, it just sort of fits the story in terms of distance and, and what we read about uh, Peter and, and Jesus in Capernaum. Again, you know, if we were going to rate this on a scale of one, X marks a spot, two, uh, probably three, uh, we're closer than we've ever been before, but this is probably not it. This is probably a one and a half to a two. But you get a better picture now of the walls that went around that first century. This is fourth century. This is fifth century of the church that went around that first century room that's considered to be the home of Peter. This is what makes Capernaum one of my favorite places in the entire world. Um, this is the synagogue in which all of that stuff that Tony read about in Mark chapter 1 took place. This is a one X marks the spot. As you can see, uh, you know, this 4th century uh, uh, synagogue is built with limestone. Uh, there is, uh, there's these, the columns are still intact from the 4th century. This is uh, Yuval, who is our guide. Uh, the entrance, the, the back entrance to the synagogue was here. That first picture was the front picture, or the front entrance. There would have been a seat in this area right here, which would have been called the Moses seat. The Moses seat is where you would sit, a vault would be open, the scroll would be brought out, and you would read from Torah, you would read from the Wisdom League, you would read from the Prophets, and there would be sermons. And, and people would sit on, on the benches that were along the side. In fact, you can see some of our group right here sitting on the benches that still exist. Uh, here's a picture of us in front of those columns. It's a good looking group of guys. I will say that. Uh, what, is, what is stunning, though, about this place to me is that it's all built on this black stone that goes back to the time of Jesus. And as you can see, it's built on the foundation for the synagogue that Jesus would have been in when he taught with authority, when he healed the demoniac, and then when he left that place and went to Peter's house to heal his mother. That is the foundation to that first century synagogue that Jesus would have been in in, the first, in, in, uh, in Mark chapter 1. And again, here's another picture of it. Before we go there, just a, just a note or two. You know, one of, one of the things that, that always happens is, you know, when you read your Bible, it, it's, it's a struggle for the words not just to be words, Right? I mean, there's, there's a part where it's academic. You're reading these words and you're trying to make sense of what these words mean. And you're trying to figure it out. And you're trying to put these words in your heart. And then there's the struggle for these, these words that go into your heart to become real. For them to go all the way down into the center. And they become a part of who you are. And they become so, so real that it's, 
know, these words are no longer dusty and, and cobwebbed, but they're words that are actually living inside of you. That when Jesus was alive, he had a hometown. The way that many of us consider San Antonio to be our hometown. Which meant that he, he lived like a lot of us did in the sense of having neighbors and he knew their names. And he saw how their kiddos grew up. And he went to synagogue on Shabbat the way many of us go to church on Sundays. And we, there were activities and there were relationships and there were friendships and there were meals and there were suppers. And you, you, know, you get this idea of, of people gathered together in these rooms and there was you know, the black stone, the basalt stone that formed the walls and, and, and the floors. There, there was grinding of wheat going on and there was, there was the pressing of, of oil and people storing food and the preparing of meals. And you know, here is the hometown of Jesus and he lived in a place the way that we live in a place. The way that we survive and the way that we live and the way that we socialize. He is doing this as well. The only exception is that he brought the kingdom of God with power to bear on this city. The evangelistic triangle is known as Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. And this is where most of his miracles took place. And when you think about all of the miracles that took place here, you, you have the woman with the bleeding issue, you have uh, demons, you have a little girl being brought back to life. You, you have all of these miracles that take place. And then you think about the teachings that took place and you go, how amazing it is that we would read a scripture like this out of Matthew chapter 11. It says that Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. When you think about the miracles, you know, um, we ask the question a lot of times in class, why did Jesus do the miracles? Well, one answer is, you know, he's God. And it was a way for him to show that he was different, that, there, that he was God, that he was the son of God, that he was the creator of all things by this great power that he wrought in nature and in human life. Another reason was to drive home the point of his teaching. In this particular town that we're looking at, in Capernaum, one night, Jesus is teaching in one of these rooms with the, with the black stone walls and, and, and everybody's gathered in and pushed in. And, and you can kind of see how everybody's having trouble getting to Jesus and hearing to Jesus because of just how congested everything is. And then all of a sudden, while he's teaching, part of the roof gets, gets pulled away and paralytic gets dropped into the room where he's teaching. And you remember what he says, right? Your sins are forgiven. And people get upset. Who is this to forgive sin? I mean, only God can do that. And so he asks you know, a question. Which is easier? To say to this man, your sins are forgiven, which nobody can prove. It's, you can't do it empirically. So that would be the easy thing. Or is it the hard thing to say, get up and walk in, which you have all of these witnesses, and the proof is in the pudding. Do you have power or not? And he goes, in order for you to know that the Son of Man has power to, to forgive sins, I say to you, stand up and walk. And he did. Another re I mean, it's just to prove that his teaching had authority, right? Another time, he, he did it because, you know, he, his heart was broken at what sin had done to the world. The world has fallen, and it's a, it's a place in which people are crushed. People that are made in the image of God are crushed by the fallenness of the world, the sin that is prevalent, the violence, the meanness, the racism, the objectifying of people, the greed, the lust, all of these things. It just it crushes people, and then on top of that, there's death. 
And how many times did I just out of mercy and out of pity was there a miracle to just bless somebody because he loved them? But there was another reason, and this is the one that we don't always talk about. There was another reason that Jesus did miracles, and it was to cause repentance. It was to bring people to their knees humbly and spiritually, intellectually, and emotionally to know that they are in the presence of God himself. And so in this place of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, Jesus just did all of these miracles. Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Just to the west is, is the place that we looked at a couple of weeks ago where Jesus, in this amphitheater that is kind of carved out naturally from, from a hill, he stands not far from the Sea of Galilee and speaks up into this natural formation of an amphitheater in a hill and he teaches people about what it means to be a disciple, beginning with the Beatitudes and talking about Practicing your acts of piety before men and trusting Him and trusting God and seeking the kingdom in love. And He does all of this teaching and He does all of these miracles. And what is He trying to do? He's trying to get people just to turn their life around, to turn their thinking around, to turn the, 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 the direction of their life around, to recognize who He is in His own hometown. And it was to bring repentance. And he says, woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. <coughs> For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And then he says, and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? Because God's Son lives there because of your righteousness, because of are you going to be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. What does that tell you about the power and the number and the prevalence of the miracles that Jesus was doing there, that if Sodom had seen it, Genesis chapter 17 had seen that it would have they would have responded in a way that would have caused them allowed them to stay until this day but I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you one of the things when we think about Capernaum we just don't think about a town we just don't think about a place that's up on the northern sea of, of, of Galilee we don't we don't think of just a, a geographical point in which Jesus did, did some stuff and kind of helps us locate a northern ministry as opposed to a southern ministry down in Jerusalem. What we think about when we think about Capernaum is his interaction with people. His interaction with people that was not just you know rubbing shoulders and going day to day, but it was, it was an interaction with power and with wisdom. The wisdom in his teaching, the wisdom that amazed people. They could not believe what it was that they were hearing. And, and then to see all of the stuff that they saw with their own eyes, the power of the miracles, and yet to not allow him to penetrate their hearts as they're down. And the lessons of Capernaum are the same lessons today for us. You know, it, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter where we live in the world. Christ is with us. 
And when we read these stories about how he interacted and what he taught and what he called us to do, do we have the heart of, of the people of Capernaum? Or do we have the heart of a disciple that stands back in awe and just is, is able to see in these stones and in these insulas and this synagogue and these, and, 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 and these places that God himself became a human being and tabernacled with us, John chapter 1, in a place like Capernaum. And we got to see God up close. And how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? Is it, is it just intellectualizing the words of the Bible and knowing where he was and when he was there and what he said? Or is it a word that gets all the way from the inside of us and changes us in a way that he wanted to change those people in Capernaum? flip side though is that his disciples also came from this area. There were people that saw that saw with their own eyes embrace somebody from the dead. So, heard his teaching and they were so moved by what they saw that it changed them completely. And they were willing to give up everything in order to be with him. We're going to sing a song right now. David's going to lead us. And the invitation tonight is you know, to, to really do business with the word of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus in such a way that they just don't become an academic, uh, sort of a trivial pursuit piece of knowledge for us, a database for us. But they become living flesh and blood. And we find ourselves being moved like those people did in hearing these words that he spoke and knowing without a shadow of a doubt. That when he spoke, seas were still. When he spoke, people came back to life. When he spoke, there was a wisdom imparted. When he touched somebody or when they touched him, there was a bleeding issue and a healing that would take place. And that this was the power of God coming among us to remind us that he is in this world. Even though at times it seems like we're being crushed and we're being hurt. And we find ourselves the, the victims of this rampant fallenness and this rampant sin dealing with our own sinfulness, that he has intersected all of that and has overcome it. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. If there's a way that we can minister to you tonight, we want you to come down and talk to them as we stand and praise God right now.